This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives, dreamers and entrepreneurs online. I'm your host, Sarah Tasker, a certified coach specialising in creative business and all things related to social media and the digital realm. This is episode number 105. Hello, hello. A very happy new year to you all. We are in 2022. We made it. And I don't know what we can expect from it. I think after 2021, when we all had these high hopes for a fresh start, we're all being a bit more cautious about our hopes for 2022. But I hope it doesn't suck. I hope it's going to be a good one in as many ways as it can be for as many of us as it can be. That's my hope. So it's been a quiet Christmas for me. I've tried to keep it quiet. I've been having a flare up with some of my health problems. So there's been a lot of time in bed, a lot of Netflix time and a lot of frustration about that because there's so much I want to do. And those of you who have chronic illnesses or disabilities might relate to that feeling of wanting to be doing, but your body says no. But what I do find is by the time my body finally agrees, I am like a coiled spring and I am so full of ideas and momentum and enthusiasm that I tend to make up for lost time when I get going again. But for now, I'm trying to take it easy and just focusing on the things that bring me joy and bring me revenue and don't wipe me out too much. So for that reason, I have launched as a little experiment, really, some one-to-one coaching slots over on my website. There's just a handful. I sent an email out about it before Christmas, so there's only a couple left in each of the two packages. But if you would like some business coaching, kind of a mixture of mindset coaching, but also business strategy, someone who's been there and done it, who can support you, hold your hand, guide you, and just hold completely neutral and loving space for you to be the hot mess that we all are, then I would really love to talk to you about being your coach. If you head on over to my website, meandorla.co.uk, and look for the one-to-one coaching, you will see the two packages I'm offering and everything else you need to know, and you can book a discovery call with me there as well. Also, a heads up that the Insta Retreat is enrolling again on Monday, if you're listening to this as it goes out, Monday the 10th of January 2022. January is usually our fastest selling class, so if you want to join me for six weeks of all-inclusive Instagram education to take your account from being maybe something you feel awful about or dread using or hide from or just feel sad about to your thriving, joyful internet home that truly showcases everything you have to offer and attracts the people who connect with your work, then come and check that out too. The Insta Retreat, it is over on my website. The link will be in the show notes. And yeah, that's on sale from Monday. Both of those options have payment plans available. And I think what I'm going to do for the Insta Retreat, again, just an experiment, is I'll put a handful of options on sale to book a one hour coaching call with me as well as take the class. So you could do the class and then we could have like an hour to take it further or go to the next level with your work. I'm in this point in my business right now where I'm just playing around and really enjoying going, what would it feel like to do this? And what would it be like to do that? Over Christmas, I sold my first ever physical product. I was selling Christmas cards and 
it's just really fun to have that freedom in my business right now to try different things, to see what feels good energetically in terms of commitment, in terms of marketing, in terms of all of that. And of course, at the same time, get that fresh first-hand knowledge of how these things work. Like how does physical product selling, how does drop shipping work, all of that stuff. I'm definitely someone who can never leave it alone. I always have to be in the trenches trying new stuff out. So yes, a couple of new things and one good old thing, the coaching, the coaching with the Insta Retreat and also the Insta Retreat all on sale now or very soon. So speaking of Instagram and the Insta Retreat, one of the things I teach within there is the secret of writing captions and just creating content in general that elicits a response from an audience. So much of what we share online can end up falling kind of flat because there's no space for a reaction. Either we're playing it super safe because we're scared people might have a negative reaction or perhaps we're just kind of closed off and we're not really inviting people in to communicate, to share, to be a part of the conversation with us. But someone who is an absolute expert at this is my guest for today's conversation, journalist and writer Natalie Morris. I think I first met Natalie via Twitter. She writes for The Metro, which is a UK daily newspaper. And she has this uncanny eye for what will be popular, what will be a good story. So sometimes she'll contact me about something I've posted and say, can I write about this? And it might be, um, I think one was a secret den that we'd built in all this room or something she's already picked a topic on and she just needs a contribution for. Obviously, she's extremely good at her job, but I think that extra talent, that ability to see where people's interests will lie and what things will connect with people is kind of the secret magic to anything that does well on the internet. So it was really fun to be able to talk to Natalie about her creative process, about how she sees her work and where it fits in the world, and about her newest venture, which is her very first book. Her book is called Mixed Other, and we talk about some of the topics that she covers in that, about growing up mixed race in the UK, and the complicated tangle of identity and privilege and parenting that people of mixed race have to contend with as they walk through the world. The book shares the experience of lots of different people from lots of different perspectives and it was really fascinating hearing about Natalie's process of gathering these stories and the things that she's taken away from it, the things that she's learned and how it's felt to share that message with a sometimes hostile online world. Natalie is active on Instagram and especially Twitter so you will find her links in the show notes. I definitely recommend you connect with her and check her out. And yeah, here is Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hello. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. It's really lovely to speak to you in real life. I, I was thinking, and I think we've only ever talked like on Twitter DMs. A hundred percent. It is definitely one of those where I'm like, I feel like I know you, um, but actually I've never heard your voice. So this is very nice. Yes, <laughs> finally especially, especially because we both have Manchester accents. Yeah. I know. I love that. So refreshing. <laughs> Someone who speaks properly. I love it. I love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> um, for anyone who is hearing from you for the first time, could you tell them who you are and what you do? 
Absolutely. So my name is Natalie Morris and I'm a writer and a journalist. Um, my main job is that I'm senior lifestyle writer at metro.co.uk and I've just written my first book, Mixed Other, which is out very soon this week, which is crazy. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm about. I'm a writer essentially. And how did that start? Was that always the dream or did it kind of find you? Do you know what? It was always the dream. Um, I've always, always wanted to be a writer and I would write stories when I was a kid. And even when I was at school, I had this idea of of I, like writing articles was kind of my dream. But then I got a bit older and I was like, this seems like a unfeasible, unrealistic dream. Um, and I kind of went in some different directions and tried a few different things. Um, but thankfully, I've managed to actually make it my full-time career, which is like the dream. Um, yeah, it's, I still have to pinch myself sometimes. And you know, obviously you get days when you're like, oh God, work, or you know, you, you forget just how lucky you are to be doing what you want to be doing. So yeah, I'm really grateful that I get to write as my full-time job, it's awesome. And how has it been writing, obviously, long form for the book, um, but also kind yeah. of for yourself, presumably? So like that difference between your writing for the Metro versus your writing mm. as you. It's really, really different. Um, it's a lot more challenging, um, obviously a lot more time consuming. Uh, I Sometimes I looked at the book as though it was essentially like a series of extremely long articles and I, that was kind of how I like rationalized it in my mind because when I thought of like the word count that was needed for the book that was so overwhelming and I was like that's impossible like it's not physically possible for me to write that many words about <laughs> like how does anyone do that um, but if I broke it down in terms of chapters and I was like okay this one chapter is essentially like me writing six really long articles I, that was how I kind of rationalized it um, and eventually I kind of got to the end and I was like oh right I've written I've written 70,000 words amazing so yeah but it's it, it was it's definitely a whole different ball game um there's a lot more research involved also there's a lot more of myself in in the book and writing yes. long form um as a journalist your instinct and um, you know what your job is to take yourself out of the narrative. It's all about being objective and, and who you're interviewing and your subjects and the you know the experts you're talking to. Um, so when it came to writing the book, I found it quite difficult to kind of remember that oh wait no this is this is actually my story. Um, I have to be in it as well. Um, and I found that quite uncomfortable at first. And I was a bit like embarrassed, like, oh, no one wants to hear about me. And my editor kept being like, put put more of you in. We want to hear your personality. We need to hear your voice. And I was like, right, okay. But that was, yeah, that was one of the biggest differences, definitely. Yeah, I guess goes against all your journalistic instincts. It really does. It really does. Yeah. And did you find, this is my my assumption, but that you had more time to sit with it than you would with um, with an article or with something that was for a print deadline oh yeah I mean it was endlessly sitting with me like I was sitting with it all of the time like even there was no switching off from writing a book there is no switching off um and that was that was I think I like that but it's it, it is also really hard because you just you could always be doing more you could always be doing more work you could always be writing when you've got a project that that that's that long and that huge 
Um, so as a as a journalist, obviously you're working on really tight deadlines. My turnaround sometimes is so quick. I'll I'll be writing an article and then it's out that afternoon or the next day or in two days time, um, and that's and then yeah, I post it on social media and I share it and and it's done and I move on to the next thing. Yeah. So to have something something on my plate, something on my to do list that I couldn't tick off for almost two years <laughs> was, was very hard because I like to just, I really like ticking things off and being like, cool, what's next? Cool, what's next? And this yeah. was just, there was just always more to do, always more to do. Yeah, I feel like your job must like wire your brain to, to work that yeah. way so when you're given the opposite parameters and it must be. Yeah. Yeah, it must be an it's, experience. It, yeah. <laughs> it very much is. It's funny because you think it's the same job, like writing's writing, but yeah. the 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 forms are so different, and it really requires a lot more patience and I don't know, trusting the process. And it's yeah, it's really been a journey, and I've like learned a lot about myself and like how I write. And yeah, obviously it's my it's my first book, so it was a real learning curve, and there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of self doubt. Um, a lot of just learning how the how it actually works, like with the edits and going back to my yeah. editor, and then you know it's a long process. Like she, my editor would have it for a, for a month or so, and I'd just be sitting there like, oh, like oh, I hope she doesn't hate it, and like, and then she'd send me an email with her edits, and I'd be like, ah, like freaking out, like oh my god, please don't tell me I've got to like start again because it's terrible. But um, <laughs> so it was it was definitely a learning curve, but I feel like it's been something I've really enjoyed getting to know the process of. Yeah, yeah. And how does it feel now it's out there? Like, well, very oh. nearly. I was just saying, I, mine's just arrived, so I haven't read it yet. Yeah. Actually, about half an hour ago, but I'm holding it. It's real. I love that. I love that you're holding it. It's 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 amazing and terrifying. Um, <laughs> not necessarily an equal measure. I think it's more amazing than terrifying. And I'm really trying to um, overcome this anxiety and this doubt. Um, because I just, I really want to enjoy this because I know I'm going to look back and and you only get to publish your first book once. So I'm trying to just be like, be in the moment, be happy with it, be excited. You don't have to worry too much about the reaction. People are going to have the reactions that they have. You can't control that at this point. So just enjoy the, the experience. And I, I'm so excited to, to share it and to see that people are reading it. Um, and I'm finally going to get to enjoy these words that, like I said, have been been with me, just me for, for almost two years. So it, it's a really exciting moment. And given the year we've all had, uh, you know, there were points where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this over the line. I don't know if it's, mm. if I'm going to get to this moment. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of myself for, for pushing through and getting it to this point so yeah I, I can't wait to go to bookshops on Thursday and see yes. it in the shelves that's Hold gonna be amazing <laughs> yeah Definitely. exactly it is an amazing feeling yeah um, how much of that anxiety that you've mentioned is due mm. to the subject that you're talking about in the book yeah I'll probably probably quite a lot um it's t- writing about race is just always contentious regardless of of what you're saying particularly at the time we're in at the moment um and you know with with social media culture and online culture and there is always going to be pushback and there's Mm -hmm. always going to be people who have very strong opinions about this kind of stuff either way um and I think yeah that there is anxiety because I and I and I have a taste of this because I write about race a lot in my job 
um, anyway. Um, so, you know, and I, I've, I've, I've developed a really thick skin around it when it comes to my articles and, and it no longer affects me. But I remember at the beginning, I'd be reading the comments and I'd be like, oh my God, this is terrifying. And yeah. all these people are so angry or they disagree so vehemently. And it was, it confused me a little bit because I, I'm actually... I write in a quite a measured way, I think anyway. Um, so it's never, it's never, you know, overly preachy or opinionated or, well, that, you know. Like yeah. to, to research for this, for this episode, I was reading, you wrote that beautiful article for The Guardian about um, beauty standards and kind of appropriating yes. mixedness and in, yes. in beauty standards. And it was just such a like logical, accurate piece. And then I read the comments on Twitter mm -hmm. and I was like, how like how is it yeah. gonna be and it I mean it, yeah it's day day ruining stuff for a lot of people like the kind of stuff it, reading. yeah it can be and, and the Guardian piece was a, was a really good example of that and it kind of felt to me almost like a taster of what mm. you know the possible kinds of reactions I could get to when the book's out in the world um I mean it's, it is a different thing publishing an article that everyone can just click and read you know I'm not necessarily going to get people who who already hate the idea of what I'm writing yeah, they're, they're not, not going to go buy. out and buy my book in order <laughs> to then you know post about how much they hate my book like I don't think it's not quite the same whereas people if you write an article it's easy for people to click it and mm. you know take take quotes out of context and um but yeah it is yeah day ruining is a good I'm trying to not let it ruin my whole day now um I think I saw some really intense comments about the Guardian piece and it sent me into a bit of a spiral for maybe a few hours and then I managed to pull it back and be like Do you know what the, like it doesn't impact me it doesn't impact my day what these people are saying on the internet about my article um so yeah it's uh it, but it is it's hard you have to develop strategies um to cope and to not look at comments and I think um discipline around social media is a really important one for me yeah well it's something like even I just struggle with it in the sense of whose opinions are you going to listen to and mm. why we get sucked into listening to the opinions of people mm -hmm. who we probably wouldn't take advice from on any yeah. other subject in the world exactly so exactly only imagine when it's an like an even more volatile and vulnerable thing to be talking about but I guess mm. as well like it's so interesting you said that like an article kind of has a way of sneaking into people's lives in a way a book doesn't and I guess that's also the yeah. power of it isn't it and why articles like that are important because it's going to challenge people who wouldn't see it elsewhere absolutely yeah that is so true and I think one of the like key strategies I have in my mind is that reaction is the point of writing um and, and they don't have to be positive they don't all have to agree with me and I have to like remind myself of that and I saw a quote that said you know you've you've only failed as a as a writer if if people don't react at all if the reaction is silent oh, wow. so yeah and I, I try and remember that when I've got people like you know calling me all sorts or you know accusing me of this that and the other and I'm like okay uh, that's yeah you don't agree with me clearly but my job is to provoke discussion and new ways of thinking and to challenge people. And if people are commenting angrily, then they're challenged. If people are commenting, saying that they support it and they feel seen and they're, you know, they're grateful that it was written, that's also a success. So I've got to remind myself that my job isn't to make people like me or, you yeah, know, give me praise yeah, or yeah. agree with me. It's just to, it's to challenge people and provoke, you know, conversation. <laughs> I think that's hard, especially because as women, we are not 
we are not trained no. for that for that that is it, not the yeah. life we're built for and, and it takes some rewiring so obviously you write for the metro how mm. much balance and control do you get in like a, a contracted job where you are writing on a specific topic like how mm. much of you do you get to bring into it how much say do you have on topics and and how mm. much kind of is it just you trying to fit the readership that you know is out there yeah, I mean, I've been really lucky um, in in my role at the moment, and I, I think one of the best things about uh, working at Metro.co.uk uh, has been the the level of autonomy that that I that I'm given, um, and you know, the ability to write about the stuff that I that I get to write about. I love that I I do have that level of trust from like the senior editors and um you know support as well in those areas and that's something I'm I'm really grateful for and has you know opened up a lot of different conversations that you know aren't necessarily seen very often in in mainstream news publications so that's that's been a massive positive for me um obviously there's there's a balance and there are there are processes and there are things I have to get approved I don't just get to say whatever I want <laughs> uh, sadly um but you know a lot of the you know a lot of the stuff that I'm writing pretty much all of it is the stuff that I want to write and that's that's all you can really hope for as a writer um and so yeah that's that's been really great and I think um it's quite rare um when you're writing at, at big publications on and on big platforms so yeah that's 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 a real positive for me in, in my job at the moment yeah it does seem like it's quite rare from other conversations with other journalists and yeah as well for freelance journalists who maybe like you don't then get even to decide where it ends up because you write the piece and then you've just got to sell it yes yeah, that must be really hard. I don't have much experience of of having to do that because I've never been a, you know, a full time freelancer. And I think that's an amazing thing to do. And um, but yeah, that must be exhausting. Just like writing this piece that you put your heart and soul into and then just kind of having to yeah, sell it and be like, who will take this work <laughs> that I've put my heart into? Somebody, please. Yeah. yeah, that must that must be really difficult. So there is. Yeah, there are, there are benefits of like being staff um, at a publication. Um, but then at the same time, there are, of course, there are limitations. There are certain things that we have to think about in terms of our target audience, things that, you know, sometimes I'm like, this would be a great idea. Um, and my editors are like, yeah, that just isn't going to work for us. We, and then and then you're also limited because you can't necessarily then go and write for somewhere else because you're contracted in a in a full-time job so there you know it's swings and roundabouts in a way I suppose everything comes down to that in the end anyway yeah yeah exactly so kind of switching modes back to the book I was really curious I know there are a lot of interviews in there with different people from is it just people from the UK you spoke to yes yeah how did you go about like finding those people and what kind of format did the interviews take well, they were all quite different. So uh, it was really important for me to me that the book was like not just my own story. So this really isn't like my view of what it means to be mixed. Like this isn't like a memoir in the slightest. I wanted it to be so much broader than that. So the interviews are like such an integral part of the narrative. Um, and so I, I chose people, I started off in like my kind of immediate circles, the people I know, my friends and friends of friends and colleagues. Um, and then I broadened it out and put a call out on social media. And because I've written about this stuff in the past and I've kind of been in the kind of mixed community, as it were, in terms of like the, this like a meetup group that I, that I went to a few times and uh, some Instagram kind of uh, accounts that I follow that has, that have 
this kind of community already engaged, it was really easy to, to find people who, who want to talk about this stuff. Um, and for me, it was it was really important to, to get a really wide variety because there's so much diversity in Mixus. And that's like one of the key points of the book is, is how unique and varied and like wildly divergent our stories are. And are like, you know, there's so many different like ethnic makeups you can be when you're mixed. Um, and people don't often think about that. You know, people often think that being mixed is, is still one thing. Um, so I wanted to get like a range of ethnic makeups I wanted to get a range of people who who weren't mixed with white um crucially I thought that was a really important thing that isn't discussed very often um and also different ages so people who aren't just millennials like because that's obviously my go-to being a millennial mm. myself I wanted to broaden out the conversation sorts of older mixed people and people who grew up in rural areas um mm. in in you know different parts of the country because all of these contextual factors like location and age and gender and class and all of these things are so integrally important and can't really be separated from someone's experience of of how they're racialized like it's race doesn't exist in a vacuum so if you're if you're mixed or if you're a black woman you're not just that one thing you're also yeah you're also a woman you're also uh, working class or middle class you're also northern um there, there or you're, you're also in your 50s or you grew up in in a specific time so all of these things work together to kind of feed into to your specific experience so that's kind of what I wanted to pull together to get a much broader picture of the mixed experience and it's not complete this is a starting point mm -hmm. but I think uh the the range of stories that I've got in the book are you know a really good kind of sweeping picks picture of of the different experiences um of mixedness in the uk today essentially did you have pushback from anyone that you were speaking to or were there like topics people just didn't want to go near everyone i spoke to uh was really really open really keen to talk about these issues um their own experiences people love talking about themselves so it's not mm. hard like once you once you get them in that space like and if you know it, these are the kind of these are people who volunteered to talk yeah. about and they're in safe hands with you they, they yeah yeah I had I had a good trust of people and I like developed you know good relationships like there are a lot of people I've met through doing this that I still message and you know I'm gonna they're coming to the the zoom book launch and like we have a nice we have a nice relationship so I feel like they they really trusted me um with their stories which was really really nice um yeah, so there, there weren't really, any, there was nothing really off limits, and I think that's that's reflected in the in the stories that you see in the book. Like, it's we really, you know, we get really deep with a lot of people, and I, I love that. Is there anything that surprised you? Like, you probably went in with expectations of what you would be hearing. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there were loads of surprises. I learned a lot um, through doing these interviews, and I think you know, I spoke to. To people with such different experiences than myself so for example there's a whole chapter on people who are mixed but who pass as white as the the mm. phrases so they so to other people they're assumed to be white um and i think those experiences were particularly fascinating to me because i'm i'm um i'm mixed and you know very clearly um black very clearly non-white um so these are experiences that i've that i can't relate to and that there's it's such a fascinating space to sit into and that I think the people who I spoke to who do pass um, were so, you know, so keen to impress 
the level of privilege that comes with with uh, looking white and moving through the world as though you are white, um, but at the same time having you know direct family who aren't white. Mm. Um, there's this one guy. George, who I spoke to in the book, he's half Indian. Um, so he's he's really the same, like, kind of, you know, mix as, as a lot of other people who would look very clearly non-white. And he really does look white. And his brother, for example, who has obviously the exact same parents, looks incredibly Indian. Um, so to hear his experiences of, like, watching the kind of overt racism that his brother experiences and feeling... The way he describes how he feels about that was just so interesting to me. Um, and that, yeah, that was a, a real, really eye-opening element of the book that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, I, I was reading, um, was it for Stylist? Was it for Stylist, the link you sent me? When you sent me the uh, Oh, ref the Refinery29. Refinery, yeah. So yeah. I was reading um, the interview you gave for Refinery29 and like, obviously this is just my own blinkered privilege, but just not really ever having thought about the fact that it, neither parent can fully relate to the experience that a mixed child is having if they're not mixed yeah. themselves. Yeah. And where to go as a child if you want someone to talk to who understands that experience. Mm, that, yeah, that's, that was something that was um, a really recurring theme. And that's something that kind of transcends the, the heritage makeup that you happen to be. So if you're black and white or Asian and white or Asian and black, like there, there is still, regardless of your mix, there is always that thing of your neither parent completely understands what it what it means to experience life through this lens of kind of in-betweenness that, that you do. Um, so that, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And so, so my dad, um, who was Jamaican, for example, experienced a lot of uh, overt, um, aggressive, hostile racism um, when he was growing up in, in the seventies that mm. that I would that I would never experience as a as a light skinned mixed race black woman, um, it, and just his his experience of that kind of racism is so different to anything that my sister and I have experienced. Um, and then on the other side, there's my mom, who is just the most supportive and incredibly understanding woman. And she's so on it with these issues and she's constantly educating herself and learning and, and wants to, to know everything that she can to, to equip herself to, to have these conversations. But at the same time, she doesn't, she can never have that lived experience that we do. Yeah. We don't go to her, like as a kid, if I went to her and said, oh, some kid called me this name in the playground, she doesn't instantly know what that feels like. And she can't then be like, okay, this is what we do when this happens to us, because yeah. it's a different experience. So I think like, I, you know, if, if you're black, for example, and you go to either of your parents and you say I've experienced racism, they can sit you down and they can be like, okay, this is what we do. This is how we cope with it as a family. We're the same. And I know what that feels like. And so there, there's an element that can feel isolating and you're, and you can feel a bit like, okay, no one else in my family properly gets this like on a level where they just instantly understand it and that can be quite tricky I think yeah I guess it's more of that other isn't it that's there in the title yeah and children can be so sensitive to that notion that like oh I'm not we want to be the same as everyone around us I don't want to fit in a hundred percent yeah yeah it's something I thought about like you know even just like superficial things like looking like your mom and you know growing up where I wanted to have her mm -hmm. hair and you know you look to your mom or, or your dad as like the person you want to kind of emulate and there are these there are certain barriers with that when you're you know technically a different 
raised to, to either of your parents and you're like, okay, I've got to kind of forge my own sense of identity and who I want to be and what I want to look like without having that like almost, you know, copy paste model to look up to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And was there <laughs> any like conclusions you came to? I mean, it's, it's a big question, but like for mm. parents of mixed children, what, what are mm. the important ways to support children going through that? Um, I think, yeah, that, that is obviously a really big question. And I think the, the only real answer is to kind of have these conversations and have an openness um, to support them, because I think it can be really hard to find the space to, to bring this stuff up. Um, mm. Because again, also when, when you're mixed, particularly when you're mixed with white, um, you do have you do have privilege. You have this kind of proximity to whiteness, um, and there's often this assumption that the you know any racism or kind of difficulties that you face are you know not as bad as if you were if you were black, for example, or if you were Asian, or if you were a monoracial minority. Um, and in a way, that is true because you do have this privilege. Um, but at the same time, there's this whole other experience that you're going through that shouldn't be discounted or discredited just just because you do also hold privilege um so i think it can be hard to to voice these these conversations and and talk about what it means to be mixed um so i think for parents it's just about having an awareness creating that space for it not and think and not thinking that um like having a colorblind approach is is the best thing i think um, I don't know if this is still the case anymore, but I know that like when I was growing up and a lot of my friends would say the same thing in kind of the 90s, there was this whole, um, you know, if we don't talk about racism or race, then it's not a problem. Um, and the best thing is to just never kind of acknowledge it or mention it. And that's and that was the best kind of course of action. But I think you have to not be afraid of talking about it, even if you don't have the direct experience of of um you know experiencing racism and i think that that can be hard particularly for for white parents of mixed children um to find the language to to have these conversations and create that space where your child feels empowered to bring it up to you and it and it wouldn't be like an awkward or problematic thing for them to do yeah and is that something that you saw kind of changing in the different generations of people you spoke to um kind of mm the the their experiences of other people and and the different almost it feels like they're almost trends in the way that people have tried to tackle mm. the the racism within our society yeah I mean I hope it's going in a like positive uh like that, trajectory yeah, that was gonna be I, my question was like yeah, does it look like <laughs> it's got I mean problems? I hope so yeah I mean I I don't know I think I think there's a huge way to go um on the conversations of race but I think the fact that we're having these conversations now with such frequency and on much bigger platforms like this isn't a niche conversation to be having anymore this is kind of the mainstream conversation it's it's on all of the big platforms it's on the tv it's in films it's in books mm. now this is this is something that wasn't seen when I was a kid um and I'm you know I'm not that old so um I, I hope that like you know the younger generations that this is just more normalized so for me it took me to my kind of late 20s to kind of first grapple with these ideas and to think okay what is my identity where does the race fit into my life 
um, and, and deal with all of these issues because there hadn't really, there hadn't been much discussion at home about it. There hadn't been much discussion in schools or kind of in mainstream media spaces. So I hadn't, I hadn't really had to think about it. Um, and then I had to retrospectively kind of do a lot of work to kind of unpick a lot of the things that I'd learned and thought about myself. Yeah. Um, I guess like even just create yeah. vocabulary for that when. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think hopefully if, if people are having these conversations earlier, um, that can only be a good thing. I, I keep thinking to myself, this is, I've, I've written the book that I needed to read when I was about 17. Cause that's, that's what I, that's what I wanted to read then. I didn't know it, but that is yeah. what I should have been reading. Yeah. And if that had existed. So I just hope that like, yeah, younger people can read my book, read the other books like this. Um, and they've just got a lot more tools now. Um, and social media, I think uh, for all its faults, um there's such a connectivity and like sharing of ideas and I think there's a lot of a lot to be said for the voices that get that get platforms because of social media and that, I think that's has been a really positive force for for like minoritized communities who don't necessarily get the same space on on mainstream platforms so that's been a really good thing I think yeah, like TikTok at the moment, it's fascinating to see there's a real movement of younger, I don't even know what generation we're meant to call them now. What are they yeah. X? Are they Z? <laughs> Young ones, yeah. those ones. The ones that say we can't have centre partings anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Gen Z. That's Gen Z. <laughs> um, doing, yeah, like really informative, powerful educational mm -hmm. content around, you know, different types of minority uh, and different underrepresented groups. And mm like th with millions of views like that power to hear from people your peers and kind of start that conversation so much sooner surely hopefully it has to be be having a positive impact down the line yeah I hope so I hope so and I think also like we have to let go of this kind of like uh like uh, like intellectual elitism and snobbishness just because the, these forms are like non-traditional forms of learning like mm. just because someone's learning about anti-racism or social justice on Instagram or TikTok um that doesn't mean it's less valid you know or less intellectual just with the intersectionality of it like not everyone can mm. pick up the academic book that everyone's put yeah. on top of their reading list like some people need to start there for whatever reason don't they exactly the accessibility is a huge thing so I think that's that's a real positive that can only lead to good things I think but there are other things I know you've touched on about social media that are maybe more questionable <laughs> I'm yeah. thinking of like the black fishing trends mm. and I know you've even talked about like hashtags like mixed babies and yeah Ooh. I can uh, I can see how an amazing thing that could be like a positive community building like way to yeah. find people going through similar experiences but then I obviously there's also negative connotations yeah. happening too yeah there's, uh, there's just a, like an enormous amount of fetishization on these yeah. social media platforms of of mixed people um and mixed babies and children and um it's it's so creepy it's so creepy and it really doesn't come from a good place um and I think we have to be so wary of it um even though on the face of it you know it could look like a positive like oh we're celebrating we're celebrating mixed babies we're celebrating people who look like you it's like yeah but why like where does that come from and I I think there is such problematic roots underneath it that you know a lot of people overlook and don't really see it for what it is but 
it's so creepy um and, and the first thing is that it's like quite just exclusive like it's you're only celebrating mixedness in like a certain specific blueprint of mixedness so it's like you have to have the perfect like caramel skin tone and like loose curls and basically features that are that are exotic enough um but not too exotic mm. so you're so you still got that palatability you still you're other but not too other that you're gonna um scare people essentially is what it is and I think that you know when these kind of fetishes and like um this kind of pedestalization and like beauty standards are positioned on this like sliding scale where whiteness is at the top and the closer you are to whiteness the more beautiful you're perceived that is never going to be a positive thing um so I, I do think it's it's something we need to be wary of particularly on social media yeah there's these all these accounts like hashtag beautiful mixed babies and you know and it's not it's not uncommon to hear to hear white women talking about how much they want to have a mixed child because because how because of how beautiful they are like they can cherry pick the the features that their baby's going to have if they select the right you know ethnic partner it's 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 a madness how frequently people say things like that even now yeah it just sound like utter madness <laughs> but then you only have to look at like the Kardashians to kind of be like mm -hmm. yeah this madness is real like the, the yeah they go to mm -hmm. create the visual illusion of whatever it is they're they're aiming for I don't even know I think they're aiming for uh like the aesthetics of racial ambiguity yeah. so it's the kind of come profitable and trendy to look ambiguous like you like you can't really put like pinpoint where you're from and have this kind of elements of like what they would say exotic like um uh, you know feeling like you're slightly something else like to give you kind of a point of interest almost yeah um but so they're basically profiting off selected like carefully selected elements of blackness or asianness or um you know middle eastern arabic features um and they're profiting off those but without living with any of the like disadvantageous realities of actually being from a minoritized group so it's that's that's why appropriation is so damaging yeah yeah and it is just appropriation i've 100 yeah. thought ariana grande was like latina or something oh same when i saw the pictures of her when she was younger i was like what like <laughs> what on earth like that was yeah that was shocking to me <laughs> and we've just had um i've been very fascinated by the case of uh hillary baldwin hilaria oh, baldwin oh my gosh and her fake spanishness which <laughs> I, I think it's probably i don't know it's been represented as less harmful and i i, I can't speak for the people you know mm. I think I think there is still harm there because she's suggesting she's a successful kind of immigrant to the US with yeah. English as a second language and you know she, she it's all lies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there is definitely harm in in yeah. that. It's all, all appropriation is harmful for the people for the communities that that you're taking from essentially and you're denying people opportunities and you're taking up space that you don't deserve essentially um space that has been hard fought for and is still very very limited like that you know if she's getting opportunities because she's seen as as a spanish or latina woman mm. um and she's denying a space to somebody else who is actually from those communities and had a, you know a lot fewer advantages and privileges than that she has had so it's yeah it's just it's real just deception is it's definitely bad it's definitely a bad thing
agreed um she she spoke at the un like it's crazy and then i guess the other example that if we've got time we could touch on is megan markle who has kind of is kind of proven that like it's not enough it's not enough to just conform to the ambiguous standards of beauty that we want everyone Mm -hmm. to be because the way the media is treated it and and do you know even the fact that that is up for debate that's the one topic whenever I talk Mm. about it to my audience like normally we're all pretty much on the same page but there are a lot Mm. of people who still don't believe that there's any racism involved in Meghan Markle's treatment I know well this is this is why this conversation is so exhausting because it's cyclical and we're we're circling around the wrong part of the issue um like and and that's that's on the media um a lot of the time in terms of how it's being framed as to whether or not it was racist treatment and I just think you really need to get to the point where we move past that because otherwise like as we've seen we'll have the same conversations eternally forever and it's so boring um so to hear like you know people still discussing whether or not it was racism it it was we know that it was there is there is so much evidence like how many more times do black women and black people in general need to go on these platforms to 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 give you the receipts and be like here is the evidence like these are all the times that are explicitly racist like this isn't a you know um a subjective thing like objectively that this is the treatment and I I don't know what it will take to get to a point where we have like an objective standpoint on this and and we can just say call it what it is and then move on from there and then the discussion can be okay why was she treated like this what are these institutions built on was she ever going to be accepted in that space why is the this vehement energy to tear her down um and what does it say about the British public and our attitudes and as a, as a as a country um and that that's what we need to be talking about next as opposed to you know this endless um you know unproductive conversation about whether or not it was racism yeah and this feels like there's something even in the refusal to acknowledge the racism like there's yeah. something that we really should be looking at there as well definitely um, yeah it's like the the only topic where like it even kicked off in one of the Facebook groups that I that I look after. I was like, I thought we all agreed here. I thought we were all the like, yeah, you know, it's surprising. It's, yeah. yeah, there's certain truths where you think, oh, but everyone knows like mm. everyone knows that Meghan Markle was treated horrendously because of racism. And actually, no. Like, yeah, it's, it's scary. It's I find it scary when when someone you don't expect is suddenly like, yeah, I, I just really don't like her. And I just, I don't really know why. And I'm like, oh God, what do you mean? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do you feel then just in terms of optimism for the future? <laughs> you said that you think you think it is getting better and, and the accessibility to information is better and yeah. social media is helping. How much more work is there still to be done on all of this? Oh, I think there is so much more work still to be done. I think we're still very much at the beginning of this conversation. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm I'm not so naive to think that this is something that can happen overnight or in a year or even in a few years. I think this is this is a the the amount of work that needs to go in to unpick the kind mm. of uh, systemic inequalities that exist because these systems have been built on on decades, centuries of oppression um, and unequal systems. And, I, you know, like 
to unpick that would take such a long time. Um, so I think we've really got to strap in, like this is for the long haul. Um, and all of these people who in the summer were talking about being allies and, and mm. getting involved and wanting to change, like we need you to still care. We need you to not get tired or get bored or get uninterested. We need you to continue with that energy or that same energy from the summer. Like, cause we have to, it's the only way um, to, to build on something and to, and to make meaningful change is to have more people on board and willing to expend the energy. Cause I honestly think this is, this is the work of, this is the work of multiple generations to, yeah. to kind of get anywhere close to equality um but that is a very bleak kind of thing to say so at the same time there has been so much progress and I do feel I honestly feel incredibly hopeful when I hear about you know young, the younger generation particularly how they, they seem to be absolutely done with it they're, they're not having it and you know they're, they're they seem way more willing than older generations to to fight for change so I am hopeful I'm very hopeful yeah I guess it's similar to feminism in the sense that like if you got someone a woman from the 1920s and she saw she saw what we had now she'd be like amazing you've done it but we can still see living in this age exactly yeah yeah Yeah, Yeah. so true what's next for you obviously the book comes out and have you got lots of exciting stuff coming up to promote it yeah I mean I've got lots more chats and lots more podcasts and interviews and all that fun stuff which I'm getting my head around I'm not used to being like the subject of the interview at all so trying to like get better at that um so yeah just doing lots of chat about it I've got a few days off work to celebrate the launch uh, which is gonna be nice so I'm just gonna go and like explore different bookshops and take cute pictures of my book in different locations and just try and just try and enjoy the moment and and really appreciate it because before I know it it'll be it'll be on to the next thing because I like to I like to keep things moving so I, I'm just <laughs> going to try and take, take a little moment to to appreciate the achievement and appreciate um having it in the world before I'm like right okay what next you know <laughs> yeah, yeah that's beautiful and like the this is I know we're saying it's the work of generations but like this is where it starts isn't it you've put a brick in that wall now that's yeah, that's gonna I hope last. so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, that's that's a that's a good way to look at it. I like that. So, where can people find more from you? They can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm at nmoz, um, and that's the same on Instagram as well. So you can find me on there, or you can find my work um, on Metro.co.uk. I write for the lifestyle section, so you can find all of my work on race and mental health and women um and careers and all that kind of good stuff that's all on that website and your book mixed slash other is available now by the time this podcast comes out it will be now (laughs) excellent excellent yes and you can find that on all good bookstores and book websites (laughs) amazing thank you so much natalie thanks so much so show notes for this episode should magically appear in your podcast app, but they are also at meandola.co.uk forward slash 105. I'll also pop in there the links to my coaching page and the Insta retreat in case they were of interest to any of you guys. And of course, a link to Natalie's beautiful book that I can wholeheartedly recommend to anyone who would like to hear more about what she shared with us today. I hope you're having a wonderful first week of the year. I truly mean that. I am going back to bed now, but I will see you online. 
and I'll be back next Wednesday with another episode. Take care.